The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with the author Edward Carey, whose recent historical novel Little is an acclaimed exploration of the life of Madame Tussaud. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm here with Edward Carey, who's a writer and illustrator, and we're here to talk about his latest novel, which is called Little. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So let's get to um, the protagonist in your novel, uh, Little. She became the person in her history known as Madame Tussauds, or the English pronunciation Madame Tussauds. incredibly famous name. Many people may have visited the famous waxworks in London and in many other countries now as well. Um, And you've got a very interesting connection to Madame Tussauds herself. So could you talk about that? Yes, I'm I'm sort of heading out of my 40s. But when I was in my early 20s, I worked in Madame Tussauds in, in, in London. And it was just getting to know her history. I really didn't know anything about it. But back then, in my early 20s, I was employed to stop people from harming the wax populace. So I was uh, fending, you know, I was on the side of the wax people against the flesh people uh, who came in. Um, but just look, you, the, she did... She did walk through the most amazing period of history through the French Revolution, but before it, she was she was kind of she was in Paris for the end of the Enlightenment, and you know, and she modelled Diderot and Rousseau, and and you know, it just seemed like she touched the most extraordinary people. But when you were there in Madame Tussauds, working with the figures, seeing them day after day after day, the best figure, the best figure of all of them, is the self-portrait. Trait she made of her, 
obviously of herself as a, an old woman. And you look at that portrait of, of Marie Tussaud and you know that she's in charge. This is the boss waxwork. And she has this incredible presence. She's got this slightly, she's got quite a big nose, I think, and a fairly big chin. And she kind of smiles out and she's got this incredible presence and she's got these round glasses and she's, she's you know, I think she's the Baba Yaga of the waxworks. And she, she just has this amazing presence. And you know, you look at this small body dressed in in black bombazine in Victorian, you know, it's, which is a slightly frightening sort of uh, um, outfit. You know, you know by looking at the rest of the figures that she actually modeled that this woman had walked through the most astounding history and came out of it. It's, uh, you know, she's the most amazing survivor. She was born, you know, born in a village in Switzerland and, you know, she was a German speaker and then had to learn French and then she came over and she had to learn English. But what seems to me amazing is everyone could just imagine what it's like to be a Londoner. And she bought the French Revolution. She created the French Revolution up and bought it across the English Channel before we just had like magic lantern slides in London and things like that showing Louis XVI's head coming off. But suddenly here she was showing... In full three-dimensional dimensions, in full color, the French Revolution. Here it was, and it wasn't that she just, you know, made the models separately. She cast these heads from life. So she was. She lived and worked in Versailles for a while, and uh, and she she modeled the whole of Louis the Sixteenth, the whole of Marie Antoinette, and then later they were guillotined, of course. And she had their severed heads of people that she knew in her lap and cast them. And so you could see them, and it is this kind of extraordinary testament to what how violent history can be. But this is also a survivor's tale, that history is not just about the Duke of Wellington. It's also about the small people who go through it. And she's one of those, but she was an artist too, yes, very generally. But she had witnessed the most incredible history and bought it to us in England for a fee. I'm interested in what kind of sources you used for, for for your novel, because we know she wrote her own memoirs, but am I right in saying they were perhaps quite a lot embellished? Yes. I mean, she she I mean, she was very clever in that she knew what would make a great story. And, and actually, when you do a lot of research, she claims that she did this and that, and they're often not necessarily backed up by the actual papers. She says that she was, she was uh, imprisoned with Josephine de Beauharnais, who became the Empress Josephine to uh, Napoleon. And there's no real evidence to that. But one kind of looks at her and you see that little figure smiling and you think, oh, yes, come on. I mean, it's not strictly historically true. And this is a novel, of course. It's not, and you know, it's not a, a, an historical biography. So I read as much as I could. I lived in Paris. I did research there and I did research here of her archive. Um, and I spent years and years going through it because, of course, there's so much wonderful work written about the French Revolution. And you can see, you know, the actual artifacts and they're incredibly moving and, and her actual artifacts in the, the museum to this day. Um, but uh, I couldn't, you, the re, with the amount of reading I was doing, I couldn't get into the story somehow. It was again, yet again, the story of, of Robespierre and Danton and you know, everything that people know about the rivalry between these two and then the terror that happened and that so many people were guillotined under Robespierre's watch. 
So I, I had to find another way of getting at it through her. And the books, actually, that helped me more than anything else was The Day-to-Day Account of Life on the Streets by Louis-Sebastien Messier. Um, and he was, all he was interested, contemporary, you went through the revolution himself and was imprisoned during much of it. He, but before it, he just walked the streets of Paris and everything to him was fascinating. You know, how you spend time in the barbershop, he would spend ages talking about that, the, the filth on the streets, all of it. He loved it. He adored it. And actually, the moment I came to his books, I, I just, uh, it was as if everything changed because suddenly it wasn't Simon Sharma's brilliant account of the French Revolution. This was, this was someone who was there just walking through the streets, showing you what it was like not to be a royal, not to be, you know, a famous person, but just to be the bloke on the street. And I was so excited by reading Mercier's writing. I wish it was, you know, readily known in this country. And I don't think it is particularly because he's a sort of equivalent of London's Henry Mayhew, that he knew the kind of street characters. Um, and um, I loved his writing so much, I made him a principal character in the novel because I felt I owed so much to him and he'd just shown me Paris. And for much of the, the novel, Marie Little, who becomes Madame Tussaud, is a servant and she can't really see the streets of Paris. She's not allowed out of the kitchen for much of it. And so Mercier actually comes to her and tells her to close her eyes and takes her on a tour of Paris while they're still sitting in the kitchen. So for me, that was the most exciting, the most exciting research. There are many evocative passages like that in your book. And ones that I really enjoyed were um, the ones talking about the casting of the, the waxworks. And I'm sure you must have done a lot of research into how, how this was actually achieved. So what can you tell us about the processes? Well, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm an illustrator myself and, I, uh, and I, I'm also a, a, a sculptor. So I, I, made, I made a wax death mask early on. I need to, of, of actually, of, of a real, a real, a, a very real person called Dr. Curtius, who was the man who trained her, uh, who was an expert wax anatomist and then went on to make the, the wax figures. And so the whole the whole business of knowing how it smells, how to add the color colors in, how to how to put it to the right temperature, how to adjust it after it's cast, how to avoid getting air bubbles, all this I felt I had to do, and then how to stitch hairs into it individually. You have to do it individually, real human hairs. Very, you know, it takes a long time. But that I had to 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 be able. I felt to be able to really write about the process. I had to do it myself. Um, and it was a kind of extraordinary experience just knowing actually that smell of wax is an extraordinary thing. You have to start it off with plaster, you cast a, a, a face live from plaster. And then of course the horror with Madame Tussauds, she realized that so she's got a severed head in her lap that before she used to put straws up people's nose so they could breathe while she was making the cast. But with severed heads, of course, that's not necessary. And these kind of strange kind of bits where you kind of realize technically what that means, you know, and also the the weight of something, of course, so tremendously, terribly wrong about holding a head in your hands and yet going through the act of, uh, of casting it. So I really sunk myself as much as I could into the process. Mm-hmm. If we could go back to uh, Dr. Curtius and, mm. and um, Marie's first apprenticeship, because there was definitely a medical connection mm. initially with all of these body parts lying around being cast in wax. And um, how did it play a part in kind of the medicine of the time? 
Well, it was how people taught you. Know, how you were taught is is they would and Curtius was a, was brilliant at it. Clearly, he would make he would he would he would be given corpses and he would copy the corpses and he would he would you know find examples of various different diseases and make casts of people and make models of them. You know, so we would see after after someone died for a very swollen liver or something like that. This was how people that's this is how people were taught. And he was you know he was you know the you know the greatest at it in Switzerland. There's this incredible museum in called La Specola in in Florence, in Italy, where they have these incredible full wax figures and of um, of their anatomy that you can take them apart. There's a sort of sleeping Venus, and you can take her apart and and empty her out quite literally. Um, but Curtius's anatomical models, uh, as far as I could find, have not survived. Um, some of his waxworks perhaps have. Um, but you can see that this is what he, he, he did, that he would actually, this is how he taught people. And mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned surviving waxworks there, and I guess it's important to mention that there are surviving yes. waxworks by uh, Marichu. So, uh, what can you tell us about those? Well, I, I, there's 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 the self portrait, which is wonderful, and she used to, you know, she made this self portrait of her as an old woman, and then and then she would go and sit beside it. And it was you know, Madame Tussaud beside herself, which I just said, kind of, she had an incredible sense of humor as well. But I think perhaps one of the most of the most extraordinary of the surviving waxworks is the waxwork of Jean Paul Marat, who was murdered. He was a terrible man, Jean Paul Marat. Um, uh, I mean, he called himself the rage of the people, and he had this newspaper called The Friend of the People. I mean, he, but he called for more and more and more. Uh, guillotine, people to be guillotined, more and more deaths and not enough. That We will have no peace until more people are murdered or, you know, killed. Uh, and um, he was kind of terrifying. He was a doctor. He was a kind of awful, terrifying things that this man was a medical doctor and this is what he was, this is what he was calling for. And Charlotte Corday came up from Caen. She was an incredibly beautiful, brave young woman. She was a uh, descendant of the playwright Corday and she bought uh she bought a, a knife um in, in in Paris went up to 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 see him many people would come and say please 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 I've got information on such and such a people so that they can be guillotined too and she said she had information on such and such a person was let in to see him he was in his bath which might sound odd but he had a terrible skin complaint and needed to soothe his skin so he was in the bath for a lot of the day and it was actually the bath itself has an incredible presence it's a slipper bath and it and it's kind of terrifying too and she plunged a knife into into his chest and killed him. And Marie Tissot, now this is probably fact, um, was sent by Jacques-Louis David, uh, the great painter um, who was Robespierre's propagandist. I mean, you know, he was the chief propaganda minister of the French Revolution. So she was sent to cast cast this very recently murdered corpse. And what's extraordinary um, is that, I mean, it was horribly hot summer when, when Marat was... Um, was murdered. His body was already in a already in a bad state because he had such uh, an appalling um, skin complaint. But he was decomposing incredibly rapidly, uh, and they 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 kept trying to preserve the body. But so they realised they needed this was one way of doing it. And so Marie cast the body of of the dead Mara and and in the position and and by the order of of Jacques Louis David, so that then. 
they, it could be preserved, but the, so that then Davy could paint his incredible, very famous, and one of the nastiest paintings, I think, in the history of painting of Jean-Paul Marat. And what's interesting is you look at Marie's version of Marat, his mouth is wide open, his eyes are open, um, he has flakes of skin around, it, this, is a, this is an unhealthy body. And then you see David's painting, and David's painting is the most terrible lie. He's turned him into this Christ-like figure. And, and, and you look at it, and, and Mara is beautiful, and he's, it has an incredibly healthy body, and, but it's a terrible... I mean, I mean, it's a brilliant painting. It's astounding, but it is also deeply terrible and deeply disturbing and, and a lie, a total lie. Um, so the fact that she was part of that incredible piece of history, and it, and it's you know an, an immensely important piece of art history, that painting. I was in Paris um, a few years ago when that painting was seen as so terrible because David died in exile, spurned from Paris, that they never wanted the actual dead Mara back. But this was the first time since it, David took it, took it out of the country that it had been back. And it had glass, uh, you know, protective glass around it because it, it's, it's a sort of thing that, that feels like it if, if any piece of art deserves to be vandalized, which they don't, but this is one that, that, that perhaps there's something deeply evil about it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, as you've already mentioned, it's the age before photography is the age of um, shadow shows and phantasmagoria. Yeah. Um, so how did that capture the public imagination in London then when Madame Tussauds arrived? Well, that was a very popular thing. And, you know, they would have magic lanterns and they, they would show. So you'd see a full body of Louis XVI and then they could change the slide and you could see the head moving away from the rest of the body, you know, and, and the kind of shocks with it. And all that entertainment was 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 there. Um, and, you know, this is how they show the English, the, the French Revolution was through slides and shows like that. But then I, again, as I say, but, but but then she revolutionized that by actually saying, no, 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 no. We, you can give these slides, but here's a here. Look, look, look. Here's the real thing. This is the precise amount of space that Louis XVI took up. This is the precise amount of space of, uh, of who were, you know, whoever. Napoleon, she she cast from life as well. And she, you know, it's just. <gasps> There's no arguing with it. You, you look at you look at Napoleon, uh, and you stand next to him. You go, but, but, but that's amazing. He wasn't very short. What have the English been saying? What's all these drawings by by Gilray? They're lies, and of course they were. It was propaganda. He was, you know, he was above ad average height. Um, but so I think she kind of revolutionized in such a way. It was such a shock, and it was such an incredibly. She toured England. She didn't didn't just stay in in um, London to begin with she she toured Scotland she toured Ireland and then she stayed she in Baker Street she came to to rest them and then kept on doing you know she always did the most famous the most brilliant the most beautiful and the worst of humankind so you could go you know from from the best to the worst and most of us exist in that space in between and um and that's what's so amazing about seeing the waxworks is you see that you see people ordinary people walking around these supposedly ex exceptional exceptional people and you can it's a testament to her incredible success because she did it better than anybody else she had it 
access, some of it exaggerated, perhaps, but to incredible, incredible history. And everybody knows her name, perhaps not her history, but you still go to the Marlebone Road and see massive queues for people to get in. And I was just in the uh, Tussauds in Times Square in, in New York and doing an interview and walking around the waxworks. And it was just like... Yeah, she the the her you know her savviness is is still alive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. Thank you so much, Edward, for talking to us. Thank you so much. That was Edward Carey. Little is out now. Published by Aardvark Bureau. Thanks for listening. We'll return next Monday when we'll be talking about royal households with Adrian Tinniswood. Mm-hmm.